I entitled today's message, Mary's Easter, because it's about one woman's engagement with a resurrection. And I wanted to begin with a quote by John Ortberg on the sheet in front of you, who wrote a book called The Life You've Always Wanted, and he said this, I'm disappointed with myself. I'm disappointed not so much with particular things I've done as with aspects of who I've become. I have a nagging sense that all is not as it should be. Where does this disappointment come from? My failure to be the person God had in mind when He created me. Now listen, I don't know if you're necessarily disappointed in stuff you've done. As a matter of fact, you may sit here and feel like a really, really good person. You're thinking, you know, I haven't done all that bad stuff. I've always loved my kids. I've sacrificed. I've worked hard. I'm a good guy. I'm a good lady. I don't really have too many things that I'm super disappointed about or I regret. But yet there's still a nagging sense in your soul that this life cannot just be about what it's been about. There's got to be something more than this. It can't be just about going to work every day, coming home. It can't just be about shopping for groceries. It can't be about the mundane. There's got to be something deeper. Because when God made me, He made me for a particular reason. And He made me that He might express Himself himself through me into the world. Now, if that has ever been your cry, today's message is certainly for you. And we begin with a quote by Charlie Peacock who wrote a book called New Way to Be Human, he said very simply this. Two thousand years ago, in a last attempt at reconciliation, God sent His Son, Jesus, to earth. He entered into the fleshy side of the God-human story, and He let people know that the time had arrived for something entirely new. God's old way of interacting with creation was over, and a new way had begun in Jesus. Today's Easter story is going to be taught through the eyes of one woman, Mary Magdalene. Now, next to Jesus and Peter, Mary has had more garbage written about her in history than anybody else. This lady has gotten a bad reputation and a complete misrepresentation for thousands of years. Can you imagine having a poor reputation while you're living and it got worse when you died? As a matter of fact, this lady has been hearkened as the epitome of sinners that need repentance. Now, it's true that Jesus hung out with sinners. That was his general crew, was the idea of people that had horrible past and were wrestling through a horrible present. That was Jesus' people. But this woman wasn't the prostitute she's explained to be. As a matter of fact, throughout history, if you search artwork, religious artwork, especially through the Renaissance period, you'll notice something about Mary Magdalene. She is always shown as the one woman whose hair is uncovered. She will be known as the woman with long hair and unkept. It's not pinned up. It's always loose and flowing. Why? Because the long hair in that day and age was scandal. It talked about being sexually loose. Many times it suggested her as a prostitute. Times would be revealed that she would be painted with red hair because red symbolized wickedness and sin. But did she deserve all that? For 1,500 years, the Catholic Church referred to her as Mary the Penitent, and she was pictured as falling before God's feet as the worst sinner of all. And that if anyone had sin in their life, they could look up at Mary Magdalene and realize they could be forgiven. 
but did she deserve that stuff? The answer is actually no. It's a complete misrepresentation. So where in the world did this stuff come from? If everyone's believed this for so many years, how did this stuff begin? Well, it kind of begins in an innocent way and also in a way where it was just garbage. Well, first of all, you guys have to understand something. She is confused with many, many characters in Scripture. And if you've read the Bible for any length of time, do you not agree that it seems that everyone that's a woman in the Bible is named Mary? Anybody ever figure that one out? Then there's Mary, and she hung out with her friend Mary, and they had a kid named Mary. And it was kind of, you know, and all guys are named John, right? It's kind of hard to get everybody focused and organized. As a matter of fact, I was trying to even do a study on who was at the foot of the cross, and all the commentators disagree. Nobody has a clue because of the Mary situation. So she gets confused with a bunch of other ladies in the Bible, and their reputations get attached to her. One of the people that she gets linked to is a woman by the name of Mary of Bethany. Mary of Bethany, her sister was Martha. You guys remember Mary and Martha, and they had a brother named Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus. So she's kind of a big character in the Bible. Well, Mary did something unusual. What she did is during Jesus' lifetime, at the end of his ministry, just before he was going to die... She came in and anointed his feet with perfume. Do you remember that story? It's a rather significant story about a woman that was totally sold out to God. She had this very, very, very expensive perfume, and she was able to put it on, and she wept, and she wiped his feet with her tears. Do you remember that story? Well, another lady did that, too. You go, well, wait a second. Really? There's two accounts? Yeah, really. As a matter of fact, the incident with Mary of Bethany happens at the end of Jesus' ministry. Another lady anointed him in almost the identical same way at the beginning of his ministry. Where do you think Mary got the idea? This other lady was different, though. Luke tell, is the only one that tells her story. Matthew, Mark, and John tell Mary's story. Luke tells a little bit of a different story. He talks of a woman that when she walked into the room, everyone gasped. And they went, how in the world did she get in? Oh, my gosh, she's not going to touch the rabbi, is she? Everybody knows that she's completely sexually promiscuous. Everybody knows that she's lived this sinful life. Wow, there's no way she's not going to go up and touch this guy, this prophet, is she? Sure enough, she falls down at his feet, begins to weep, breaks a, uh, it says a pint of pure nard, pours it out on his feet, and begins to wipe his feet with her tears as well. Well, When you have two people doing a similar event, everyone wants to merge them as the same. And because one of them was named Mary, guess who she got pinned to? But Mary Magdalene. Now, it's even more than that. People began making assumptions about what Scripture said. When Scripture said that Jesus was known as a rabbi, they assumed, well, then he had to be married. And so they began to start stories about him getting married to Mary Magdalene. Then it would say things like Mary was at the foot of the cross and she looked like a grieving widow. Oh, she must have been married to Jesus. And rumors and speculations began to spread. As a matter of fact, the majority that started all of this comes from two speakers and two books. The first speaker was a gentleman who was a second generation disciple of John the Apostle by the name of Hypolitus. In the third century, he made a comment that Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene were one and the same. And people thought, oh, he said it, it must be true. 
Then in 591 A.D., everything got worse when Pope Gregory I said a famous sermon. In the famous sermon, he said, not only is Mary Magdalene Mary of Bethany, but she's the sinful woman that anointed Jesus' feet. For the next 1,500 years, she was called a prostitute. And it was completely incorrect. Is it possible that one sermon would cause that much impact? Yeah, clearly it is. So who is this woman? Well, as everyone was trying to sort it out, there was a group called the Gnostics. Anybody ever heard of the Gnostics? These were Paul the Apostle's battle guys. In other words, he was always going up against them. They were saying bogus stuff about Jesus Christ. They were mixing Christianity with New Age stuff. They were kind of mixing it all around. And Paul was constantly writing letters to people saying, get rid of these heretics. Get them out of the church. These guys are causing all kinds of damage. Well, those two guys had a number of books of their own that were extra biblical writings. Two of those books that they held very high in esteem were the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which was indeed uncovered, two fragments of it in Greek, and one Coptic fragment was recovered about a gospel allegedly written by Mary Magdalene herself. It completely contradicts Scripture with the fragments that we have, and it's not legit. But it made a comment. It made the comment that Mary Magdalene took on the disciples and battled them for power. That caused one concern. The other book that they held in high regard was called the Gospel of Philip. Assuming that Philip was close to Jesus and then he wrote his own gospel, they held that in high regard. And in that book, he said two very powerful things. The first one was that Mary Magdalene was Jesus' closest companion, meaning that she was his girlfriend, that she was closer to him than any of the disciples. And the second thing he said was that Jesus used to kiss her often on the mouth. Those two phrases have led to a history of bogus information that Jesus and Mary Magdalene had a sexual relationship and even had children. And you say, nobody really believes that, right? I'd like you to raise your hand if you've ever heard of, read the book, or seen the movie The Da Vinci Code. Okay, then. It just happened to our culture. That whole movie is based on that information. You need to understand it is bogus information, but it still permeates our society even today. As a matter of fact, it's also permeated another recent movie that was released, which, by the way, raise your hand if you saw The Passion of the Christ. All right, there you go. What did Mary look like? You guys remember? Mary Magdalene, not the mom. What did Mary Magdalene look like? She had long hair, and it was uncovered. Why? Because she had to have long enough hair to wipe Jesus' feet, because that's who they thought she was. She had her hair unkept because she was known as the sinner or the prostitute. What's fascinating is that within the last hundred years, the Catholic Church reversed its decision on her and said, oops, we're sorry, we messed up. They completely erased all of that, and she's no longer known as Mary the Penitent. She is, that has been removed, and they said that was an error. It's actually not her lifestyle. Kind of late now, don't you think? Here's the bottom line. There was a woman named Mary Magdalene. As a matter of fact, Magdalene comes from where she lived. She lived in a small fishing village near the Sea of Galilee known as Migdal, later to be changed to Magdala. That's why she was known as Magdalene, because they kept getting the Marys confused themselves. So they would say, hey, who are you? Well, I'm Mary. Well, that doesn't help me. 
Mary from where? Mary from Magdala. Oh, okay, you're Mary Magdalene. And they began to name her that in order to specifically say it was a different lady. This is the woman that I'm about to tell you the Easter story through her eyes. But the only way for you to understand the passion this lady brings, the only way for you to understand the power that Jesus had in her life, the only way for you to understand how she was transformed by this man and she ran to his side at any given point is to read in the text what is true about her. And we begin in Luke chapter 8. Would you open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 8, verse 1, page 731? Luke chapter 8, verse 1, page 731. Almost all the information we have on Mary Magdalene, and she's mentioned a number of times in Scripture, almost all the information begins at the cross scenario. Prior to that, there's very little written about her. There's only one passage, and it's the passage we're going to read now. Although it is small, it speaks volumes, and we're going to fill in the gaps it's Luke chapter 8, verse 1, page 731, and what I'm going to do is just read the first two verses, and then we'll pray for the word this morning, and we'll get into the message. It says this, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Who were they? Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household, and Susanna, and many others. Indeed, Mary Magdalene had been demon-possessed, not by one demon, but by seven. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, would you open up our eyes as we look into Scripture that we might know the truth of the Gospel, that we might be transformed on this Easter resurrection day, this day which we Remember that you came alive and that you're alive forevermore and that you will return someday to take those that are your own. May you be praised and glorified in everything that we do. And Lord, when we go out and begin to speculate on issues, would you corral our minds that we might try to stick with a little bit more of what we know? And would you let us see your story through the eyes of a remarkable woman that you love dearly? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What's it like to be demon-possessed? Surprisingly, perhaps to you, a number of you know exactly what it's like. We have a number of people in our congregation that have come exactly from that scenario. You're not alone. It's not just you. You have been inhabited by demons, and you have been delivered. I've had different works throughout my life with the demonic, and I know that it's real. This woman was possessed. But what does it feel like? You know, I don't know because I never have been, but I've done enough counseling to understand a little bit. But I didn't want to rely on experience. I wanted to rely on Scripture. So I went back and I examined the most obvious 16 stories in Scripture about demon possession. I went through to see if there was anything I could glean out of their story to tell me about Mary's story, and there was a lot. Even though they're all different and all different age ranges, everywhere from small children all the way over to people that are more mature in their life, even though it was both men and women, there are three commonalities that I found throughout all their stories. The first 
was that demons don't want to be around Jesus. As a matter of fact, when demons came in contact with Jesus, one of the most popular phrases that they said was, Son of God, what do you have to do with us? In other words, why are you here? Are you here to torment us? Are you here to cause us problems? Are you here to mess with us? Because we're afraid of you. We don't want anything to do with you. And if the demon doesn't want anything to do with God, and you're the host, what do you think it's going to do to you but drive you away from Christ? The second thing that is most common in the stories is that they're driven away from other people. Community is broken. They're driven into isolation, and they are largely alone, whether it's because people are afraid of them, whether it's because they're, they're sick, whether it's because they have problems, whether it's because that there's a violence or an aggression issue. For whatever reason, they're constantly driven away from other people, and they live a lonely existence. The third thing is that there's some discomfort involved. Sometimes when a demon was there, someone was mute. Sometimes they were deaf. Sometimes they were blind. Sometimes they were thrown into epileptic seizure fits. Sometimes they had the voices issue. For whatever it was, there was discomfort involved and they were miserable. But Mary didn't just have one. She had seven. Is seven worse than one? Yes. How do I know that? Because of Luke chapter 11. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 11, verse 24? I don't know how she became demon-possessed. I don't know if she invited it herself or whether it just happened to her. But there's something unusual about having seven demons. Now, this may just be a coincidence, but perhaps not. After Jesus had cast the demon out of a mute man and the man began to speak, Jesus gave some teaching on the demonic. And he said this, When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. Is it a coincidence that Jesus taught on how seven devils would arrive in someone and Mary had seven? I don't know, maybe. All I know is that seven is worse than one. What type of life did she lead? Now, this is where we begin to speculate, so you're going to have to imagine with me. If constantly you are reviled as being the odd girl, nobody wants to hang out with you. If you are known to be inhabited by demons and people just get this general heebie-jeebies by hanging out with you, then no guy wants to date you. So you live your life completely alone, you live your life isolated, that even though you may be able to keep down a job, be high-functioning, do all sorts of things, and some people don't know the truth, and you can fool the majority, you still know the dangerous secret that you keep. You know that in your own mind you are not your own. You know that there's constant pulling and tension within your spirit. You know that the depression or the anxiety or whatever it may, it may hit will hit with thunderous force. And you'll begin to feel like you're the only one that's going through this. So you begin to withdraw from society. Is that what Mary went through? Can you imagine the rejection? As you listen to Sharon's testimony today, what was the thing that kept coming up over and over and over? What was her greatest fear? But the fear of rejection. Isn't that our greatest fear? Please love me. Please care about me. 
please don't reject me. Don't tell me I'm not worth anything. Just tell me I'm okay. But when seven demons are telling you otherwise, it's hard to believe it. As she goes through her life completely lost and pulled apart from the inside out, she hears of a man. A man that's not just a man, he's a miracle worker. He's not just a miracle worker, but some people have said that he may be the Messiah. Some people call him the Son of God, and he's coming to your town. When he arrives into your town, how do you feel? Part of you is pulled to want to go see him. Maybe he can free me from this pain that I have. But everything else in you is pulling you away. Yet strangely, you're drawn in. But what's he going to do when he sees you? This is a holy man. What do holy men do when they see wicked women? There's a disgust. Is that what he's going to do? Finally, if indeed he's the son of God and he looks at me bad, I'm going to be crushed inside, she may have said. When he looks at me, if he turns away, if he shudders, if he flinches, then I'm going to know he doesn't love me. And then I'm going to know he can't help me. Then I'm going to know it's all for nothing and no one will ever free me from my pain. Yet sure enough, she comes up and there is the man speaking. With his back turned to her, perhaps, he's talking. And then it's her turn. And when he turns and looks at her, she's never seen eyes like that. Immediately. She knows that she's accepted. She's never had another human being look at her like that. Nothing but compassion. Boom. The way that Jesus had a tendency to heal his M.O. was always to ask the person with an infirmity a question. And the question was always, what do you want? You can imagine that her response, Lord, I want to be free. Boom. The demons are cast out. first time peace there's no more voices there's no more pain there's no more confusion how much would you love that man no one else has ever accepted you this man who everyone held to a high standard loved you how much would you fall in love with that guy gentlemen as I reveal this story as we go through the rest of the story I need you to hang in with me I need you to picture it in a slightly different manner I need you to picture that through a three-year ministry, you lived with this guy, Jesus, and you saw him do the inexplicable. You saw him do miracles. You saw him love on people. You saw him preach the truth. You knew that in some way he was different. He may well have been the Messiah, the Son of God. And yet, as you're engaging with him, you want to be him because you've never had respect for a man like this. Oh, he's a man of all men that you know you see this strength within him. And you're enthralled. And you just want to be near him to hear what he's going to say next. Ladies, for you, I'm going to go a different tack. The place that we find here in the Bible is in Luke chapter 8 that we just read about Mary's story. That's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It is likely that she got saved early on in his ministry and was with him for three years. Ladies, that's a long time to be around a guy. She was so transformed by what he did by revealing the demons in her and removing them out of her that she gave her whole life dedicated to him. How do we know that? Turn back to Luke chapter 8 and look at verse 3. Her story is not done. 
Luke chapter 8, verse 3, speaking of these women who had been healed, speaking of these women who had demons cast out of them, three of them did something rather significant. What was it? Luke chapter 8, verse 3 says what? These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Listen to this fact. I did not find in any of my research any indicator that anyone supported Jesus other than women. They were the ones that put up all the money so that Jesus and the twelve could do what they needed to do. The ladies put out the cash. This woman, whether she was wealthy or not, it's not known, but it's suggested that she's wealthy. How did she get her wealth? We don't know. That's speculation. But this woman poured out all her own finances. She began to make everything about Jesus and the crew. Every dollar that she had, every cent that she had, she would pour out and dole out to make sure they were supported. Because if a man saved her from that, she could never be away from his side. Because she contributed financially to the ministry, you would imagine she was allowed to see certain things that only the inner circle of guys would be able to see. As a matter of fact, this, there is women that are mentioned right here that later on in the account said that they followed him all the way from Galilee and followed around with him to minister to his needs. The next place we see Mary is on the Via Dolorosa, the walk of the cross. In a portion in Luke, it talks about the fact that there were women that followed him along on that way. If you saw the Passion of the Christ, that's what Mel Gibson was trying to capture, was them chasing after him. Keep trying to catch a look, a glance, as he would walk by. But there's something that happened first. Ladies, as you lived with this man for three years, how much would you fall in love with a man that always looked at you and gave you peace? That when you were around him, you felt ultimately safe. You knew that he loved you. You knew that there was no... Uh, anger towards you. You knew that there was no rejection towards you. You knew that he only had compassion for you. He was not a wimpy man. He was a strong man, a resolute man that many times you saw him throw over tables and chase people out of the temple. He was afraid of no one. And yet he would be that soft, tender man that the children would run and jump up on his lap and he'd play with them and talk to them and, and kiss them on the cheek and let them go and play. How much would you love that man? There's no mention of another man in her life. I would suggest that she was pretty darn dedicated to Jesus. And as you watch this man interact with people around him, you're astounded on a daily basis. Would his heart be with yours? Yeah, I would imagine she loved him with everything that she had. For he who is forgiven much, loves much. She had been forgiven much. And she loved much. But then one day, her Jesus, whom she loved so deeply, was arrested. All the guys that should have had his back, all the guys you knew so well, you considered them your own brothers, the guys that should have surrounded him and protected him, bailed out. You have anger towards them? How dare you let my Jesus be taken? I left them in your hands. You guys should have stepped up and done something. Now he's gone. Where did he go? Well, he's on trial. Where? The Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the time, they're taking care of him right now. What do you mean they're taking care of him right now? You run, but you can't get in because you're a girl. 
So you stand on the outside and hear them mock him. You hear the crowd yelling and chanting about him and misusing his name and causing him to be disparaged. You can hear them slap him and spit at him and make fun of him. But you can't get in. Then sure enough, you see that the crowd begins to move and they haul him away and they take him over to Pilate, the Roman leader. And there, once again, He's questioned as if he was a common criminal. This man who's nothing but a lamb in your eyes. He's pure, unblemished, sinless, always looking out for other people. Yet here he's being condemned as a common criminal. He's hauled off to King Herod to be made fun of again. That he became a spectacle to them. Herod just wanted to see him do a miracle. Wanted to see him tap dance for him. And then he's hauled off back to Pilate. And Pilate finally just has him beaten. And crucified. All you know is that you hear his cries from a long way away because you know his voice. You've memorized his voice that if he would ever call your name, you would respond instantly. You can hear him from a distance being hit, punched, crying out. That then they began to put a crown of thorns upon his head and they would repeatedly smack it over the top over and over and over until it drove down into his brow. The blood began to run over his face. His face, after getting punched so much, began to swell. And it says in the Bible that he was disfigured so that he wasn't even recognizable as a man. That as his body began to be moved and torn and ripped apart by lashing after lashing, 40 lashes minus one, they would still continue to mock him. They would still continue to spit on him. This was your Jesus, the man that loved you like no other. Your protective instincts launch out and you want to shield him. You want to be able to say, leave him alone, but you can't because you can't get near. And then he's marched out to a crossbeam. He's going to carry his own crossbeam of the crucifixion cross. By now, he's a bloody pulp. And you look at him and say, that can't be him. And then he looks you in the eyes and you know exactly who it is because his eyes have never changed. It's the same Jesus. And there, with this crossbeam placed upon his shoulders, he can't even stand upright. He's trying so badly to move forward to go do what he's called to do because he talked to his father the night before. And daddy said, keep going. As he marched forward, he kept falling over, over and over and over again, unable to bear the weight of the cross. Everyone continues to jeer him, push him. People would shield their eyes from the naked, naked criminal walking through their midst. People are avoiding him so they can go to temple that evening. Everybody hates him. But you keep running and saying, no, leave him alone. Stop hitting him. He keeps falling down. And then on the road, on the way down to the cross, what does he do? He speaks once. And what does he say? He hears the crying of the women. Over him. And he stops, and with a crossbeam, he turns and he looks at you and says, Ladies, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves. And he turns and keeps moving and falling and falling. Eventually, the guards get so angry, they've been kicking him so much, they know it's useless. So they rip the cross off his back, and they stick it on another guy named Simon of Cyrene, and he begins to carry it, and Jesus trails after falling. Then finally he's brought to the place of the skull called Golgotha. 
And he's laid down upon this crossbeam. And even though he wants to keep silent, even though he's not there for drama, he's not there for sympathy, he can't help but scream as the nails are driven through each wrist over and over. And the only thing you can hear him say is, Father, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. This is your Jesus. As he's nailed to the cross, it's put on the other beam and he's erected. Boom! And he just hangs up there right above you as it's slid down in place and two common criminals are hung on the other side. Two thieves, two rioters, two insurrectionists are hung at his side. And on that cross, he doesn't say a whole lot, but over the hours, he has a few things to say. One of them is because the two thieves were making fun of him. One finally understood that he was the son of God. And what did Jesus do? but save another. As he looked to his left and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. As you sit at the foot of the cross with other ladies around you, there's only one gentleman in sight. It's John the Apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's there. And there as Jesus drips his blood on everything below, as he's slowly running out of breath, as he's slowly being torn apart inside, He has something else to say, and it sounds something like this. Hey, John? Yes, Lord. Will you take care of my mom? Yeah, she's right here. And he hung there for hours, and there's nothing you can do. You want to reach up to him, but you can't. Sometimes the guards push you away. But you don't want to be away from your Lord. And then, this is what you saw. Would you turn with me to Matthew, chapter 20. Matthew, excuse me, 27, verse 50, page 705. Matthew, chapter 27, verse 50, page 705. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene. His body hung there for a while more, and then the guards began to get a little antsy. Come on, guys. Long day at work. Can we go home now? Come on, die already. Hurry up. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. The guys are still alive. As they're hanging on the cross, that's not going to kill them because they still have air. So they keep pushing up, get a deep breath, and then hang more again. And each time it's harder than the last. So finally they get so frustrated, it's getting to be nighttime. They want to move on. The Jews want them to move on. They want to get these guys down. They said, come on, how do we make them die faster? They said, break their legs. They go up, snap, break through their legs. Boom, they hang down, and they can't push up anymore. They'll die. One goes down. Second one goes down. They go to break Jesus' legs, and the guy said, hold on a second. I think he's already dead. Really? 
Out of all the guys, I've never seen anyone take punishment like that. That guy's dead? Well, look at him. He hasn't moved. We'll check. They grab a spear, and they jab him right up underneath his rib socket. Blood and water pour out, and he doesn't move. He's dead. Get him down. Can we go home, please? And all you can do is watch. They take down your Jesus, the same Jesus who you cried over, the same Jesus who you prayed with, the same Jesus who ministered to your needs, not just the devils, but every need for the last three years. The same hand that you wanted to kiss is now bloodied, and they take him away, and you don't know where they put him. In a panic, you say, somebody's got to go get him because I want to see him again. I have to touch him. I have to see his body. We have to anoint him. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, said, I'll get it. Hold on a second. He takes off and he talks with Pilate and he comes back out and says, we got it. We have his body. We're going to take it. Nicodemus, come with me. You go. And they take off and they begin to prepare the body for burial. You trail after him. You can't stand for him to be out of your sight. Not after all he's done for you. Not after who he is to you. So you run after them and you follow and keep trailing them. Then they finally get there. They put 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes all over the body as they anoint him for burial and they wrap it as quick as possible in linen because it's almost the Sabbath. Can't work on the Sabbath. It would be dishonoring to the Lord. So they have to hurry. So they're wrapping him up. They know they're going to come back and fix it. And Mary keeps going, I'm going to get here before them. Because on Sunday morning, I will go anoint my Jesus. I will give him my spices. I don't want it just to be their spices. I want it to be mine. I want to leave him with something. How hard was it for her to leave that man? To walk away from her Lord's body. But sure enough, the guys finished rapping. They said, ladies, it's time to go. We've got to go. Come on. Let's go home. He's dead. And they go home. Sunday morning, you had an arrangement with the other ladies. You meet me here. We're getting out there at the crack of dawn. We will get to that place. As you meet in the morning, it's still dark, and you begin to run. Run with all the spices that you have, gathering up your skirt. You're running as fast as you can to go anoint your Lord. And you only have one thing on your mind. Girls, who's going to move the rock? How are we going to get in there? That's an enormous, huge rock that's rolled over the mouth of that tomb. There's no way we're pushing that thing over. Somebody's got to move the rock. There's an obstacle between me and my Lord, and we have to figure out a way to get it across. But what they didn't know was, meanwhile, Jesus got up earlier than they did. And he rolled away the rock all by himself. He'd already risen. But they didn't know. Whatever obstacle you think is between you and Jesus, let me suggest this. He'll get to it before you do. And it's not hard for him to get it out of the way. Sure enough, they arrive at the tomb. Mary's running faster than the other ladies because she has to be near her Lord. She arrives first. The other girls are trailing behind her, and she stops, frozen in her tracks. What does she see? But a rolled away rock and a seemingly empty tomb. Someone took her Jesus again. In a panic, she stops does a 180, turns and runs to get Peter and John. Somebody's got to do something. Someone has to fix the situation. The other ladies go on up to the tomb to go check it out. Mary doesn't care. She takes off to go get Peter and John. She lets them know they come running. Peter and John run as fast as they can. Get there, examine it. Peter's going, I have no idea what's going on. And John is going, I think he said something about raising from the dead. 
If they go back home, Mary is not going anywhere. Not until she solves this problem. And that's where we read our last portion of today. Turn with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 10. John chapter 20, verse 10. I'm sorry, the page number is 768. 768, John 20, verse 10. says this. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. And they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. Stop for a moment. Most people would have been interested that there was two angels sitting in a tomb where Jesus' body had been. But not Mary. She could care less. Where'd you put my Jesus? I don't know who you are. I don't know why you're here. Where's my king? Verse 14, at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. Why? We don't know. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you carried him away, tell me where you put him and I'll go get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, don't hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. What do you think she did? I think she assaulted him. I think she dive-bombed him. I think she grabbed him and gave him the biggest bear hug in the world. I think she wasn't letting go of him this time. No way is he getting away again. She's going to hang on to him with everything she has, and Jesus knows it. And he's thinking, this lady's never going to let me go. I've got to talk her out of this. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my father and your father to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Did they believe her? Nope. Does she care? Nope. Because she's seen her Lord. Oh, please just show me my king one more time. She ran, and when she saw him, she was so amazed. There were those eyes. He was all put back together again. And there, with that same calming voice, he said, Hon, it's all right. I told you I'd come back. I wouldn't have told you that if I was going to leave you. And you know what? i got to go and i got to do some more stuff. But I'm coming back to get you so that you would be where I am. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You're my girl. John's my guy. Peter's my guy. And all the other Marys. I'm not going to leave you alone. And I know you worry so much that in some way someone's going to take me away from you. No one's going to take me away from you. Girl, I could have went and I could have talked to all the other disciples. Could have met with the boys. Who did I meet with? Who did I show myself to first? You. Why? Because you wouldn't leave me alone. No matter where I went, there you were. Following me all over the place. You wanted me even when I was dead. Well, here I am, and I'm alive. 
And I want you to know that because I'm alive, you'll never die. I've never rejected you. I've always loved you. And I wish you would realize how much I care about you. And I will not leave you alone ever again. The Bible says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, and he took it away, nailing it to the cross. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. There are two types of people in this room today. The first is those of you that have never fallen in love with our Savior. How? Maybe you never heard of him. If you have, I cannot fathom why you don't love him. Now, I don't love him as much as she loves him. I wish I did, but I don't. But I love him with everything I have. I've given my whole life for him. I've dedicated my family to him. No one's more important to me than Jesus. He's my job. He's my everything. And I wouldn't tell you if I didn't believe it. And if you don't know him, allow me to introduce you to him. His name is Jesus, and he died for you. And he has that same loving stare for you as he did for Mary. There's no sin that you have that he cannot cleanse. There's no past that you have that he cannot get rid of and transform and use for the future positively. There is no lack that you contain that he cannot fill. And he wants you to love him with all you have. He will cleanse you of your sins, but it will cost you your life. This is not an add-on. This is a full transformation and overhaul. If you want this Savior, you can't let your pride stand in the way. you got to face up to what you've done with you and give it over to Him and let Him take it from here and never take it back. For those of you that are like that, I'm going to pray. And I want you to pray along with me in your heart. For the rest of us that have loved the Savior, do you love Him like this? Are you spending all your time saying, where's my Jesus? How do I get closer? Are you spending time like me saying, Jesus, can you hang out over there for a second? I've got to go do a few things. Ah, what's your love level? Are you sold out? Is there any way that you could be away from your God, or do you find it really easy to not read Scripture, not pray, not attend church for months at a time, and you're totally cool with that? I want this kind of love. And I'm not there yet, but I want it bad. I want a love like that. For those of you that are like that, i got a good message for you. Jesus isn't done with you yet. We have a resurrection morning that we are just now celebrating. And Jesus has the same eyes for you when he looks at you and he says, we're okay. Let's do this. And he's got a lot more planned for you after this morning. Would you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, 
For some of us, we've come in contact with your son Jesus for the first time, and we willingly lay down our lives. We need you to save us. We cannot save ourselves. We've made a mess of it. Our sin is too big. It's too strong. And we need you to cleanse us of our past. Oh, Lord, save us. We give you our lives. We dedicate everything we have to you. We cling to you as if you are our life-saving device, and indeed you are. And we want to love you like Mary loved you. Save us today. Lord, for the rest of us, we are sorry that we have allowed distractions to cut between you and us. It's not, Lord, that someone else rolled a rock in front of you. It's that we rolled the rock in front of you ourselves. And today is the day to roll it back. We don't have the strength, but Jesus, you do. You always have and always will. And each and every time we wander and find ourselves lost, you leave the 99 and grab the one. And take us home. May you be praised and glorified in our hearts, in our speech, in our lives. And may this Easter be filled full of hope, joy, excitement, and future. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.